Zephyr Wilde put her laptop down on one of the hot desks in the Herald newsroom, her usual spot up the back. She liked to keep a little distance between her and Harland Loveday. She learned long ago that if you want to chase your own stories, you don't want to be the first person the Chief of Staff sees. It was just after 8am. Over the years, she'd made a habit of getting in early. When she'd first started, that was the only way she could guarantee a desk. There was no need to hurry anymore. Those days were long gone. After all the redundancy rounds, there was no longer any reason to hot desk, but there still seemed to be resistance to anyone actually claiming a permanent spot. There was nothing permanent about journalism anymore. Zephyr started to unpack, plugged in the laptop and fired it up. As she did, she kept one eye on the TV screens. William's election announcement was getting blanket coverage. The political reporters were in a ladder. This was the moment they lived for. Zephyr once thought she might like to go to the Canberra Press Gallery to mix it with the movers and shakers, a seat close to power. But now that circus left her cold. Even from this distance, she could smell the insincerity, the opportunism, the dissemblance, the lies. She couldn't stand it. Politicians made cops. Even some of the crims seem ethical. The date wasn't hard to remember, the day before her birthday. It would be busy. Everyone would be called on to pitch in on election day. The next day, she would turn 30. Brilliant. Happy birthday. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Michael Brissenden has been a political reporter and editor for the ABC since 1987 and a correspondent in Moscow, Brussels and Washington. His first crime fiction novel, The List, was published in 2017. Today I'm talking to Michael about his new crime fiction novel, Dead Letters. Michael, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. In true crime fiction style, Many or most of your characters have a troubled history and often people we might not necessarily warm to if we met them in real life. But your main character, Sid Allen, who we first encountered in The List, also has a soft side. How important is it that readers relate to or, or even warm to your characters? Sure, I think it's really important. And look, nobody's black and white either. That's the other thing. Even the sort of nasty characters I try and give a bit of humanity to. No one's all bad. No one's all good. I think that that is a reflection of, of our own lived experience. Sid has his problems. He's been uh, deployed as, a, as an investigator attached to special forces in the Middle East, uh, in Afghanistan. He's done too many deployments. Like a lot of people who were deployed to that conflict, he came back to Australia quite damaged by the experience, but he also has a damaged background as a child as well. And that's explored a bit more in this book than it was in the list. Um, and I wanted to go back and sort of flesh out him as a character a bit more and talk about his childhood and about what happened to him as a child. That's important to the way that his personality is formed over the years. 
But, you know, he also, uh, for re- people who've read the list would know that his partner at the time was also deployed with him to Afghanistan and was killed on a mission that he should have been on. That's a, that's a lot of guilt that he's carrying around about that. Um, he lost his father in um, uncertain circumstances when he was a child, so he's carrying a, a sort of a great hole in his personality, in a sense, due to that. Uh, so he, he is a troubled individual, but he's also considered. He thinks pretty deeply about things. So I did try and make him a well-rounded character as much as I could and also tried to explore a bit more in this book about the sorts of motivations uh, that drive him and the, um, I guess, yeah, the, the, the history, the troubled history that he has. In Dead Letters, you also introduce a new character. Zephyr Wild has a backstory too. Who is Zephyr Wild and what does she represent? So Zephyr Wild is a journalist. She's, uh, she, like Sid, also has a, a troubled background as a child. Her mother was murdered when she was 10 years old and her mother ran a brothel in the inner city Newtown in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, she had deep political connections and organised crime connections. She was murdered and it's an unsolved cold case. And Zephyr has been trying ever since she was an adult has been trying to uh, get more information to find out what happened to her mother, to who killed her mother, and she has become uh, a crime reporter. So, as she says in the book, she could have gone two ways. She could have either gone into the police force or she could have gone into journalism. And she said, well, the only thing she really knew how to do was write, so uh, she became a journalist. And she's become a sort of an investigative crime reporter. And one of the things that she's looking into uh, is the death of her mother, and she's trying to get more information about how her mother was killed and why she was killed. And to that end, she had teamed up with a politician who was a very senior backbencher who was the the chairman of Parliament's Joint Intelligence Committee. And that's the other crime in this book. That's the contemporary crime because uh, that character, Daniel Leroy, uh, is murdered at the very beginning of the book. And the two crimes converge and connect and uh, the two protagonists, Sid and Zephyr, are thrown into an investigation together. Crime fiction is as much about the characters as it is about the crime, which comes first for you? Yeah, look, I think that's really interesting. And I actually think the characters are the things that really drive crime fiction. I know people sort of say, oh, it's all plot. It's really, you know, the plot is integral. And yes, plot is very important, but actually character drives plot, I think. And one of the things that I enjoy most about writing crime fiction is actually getting into the characters and writing the characters. Um, But sometimes the crime has to come first to just sort of get the characters moving. And certainly with Dead Letters, the first thing I thought about uh, when I was starting to write this book was the crime. Like what happens if a politician is murdered? And this doesn't happen very often, right? So um, what are the consequences of a politician being murdered? What are the implications of that? Where does that go? What does that tell us about what's happening in the world and what's happening in politics and what's happening culturally? So that was the initial idea. The characters flowed from that. But I think the characters are really important for driving the plot and driving the narrative. So people remember the characters often more than they remember the plot. I suppose the third arm to any novel or in particular crime fiction is the setting. Dead Letters is set in the heart of Sydney, Parramatta, Newtown, Surrey Hills, Lakemba and beyond. What draws you to those parts of Sydney and what does the setting say about the crime and the plot? Look, I really wanted in this book to uh, explore how Sydney has changed and how our cities generally have changed through the last few decades of gentrification, which was one of the reasons why I had these two crimes that converged. One is a historical crime 
and the other one was contemporary crime. And that allowed me to go back to look at the sort of Sydney that was around in the 1980s and 1990s, which was the Sydney that I knew very well, spent a lot of time there, and it was a different place. You know, I think it was, in many ways, at least the inner parts of Sydney, like the, the, the gentrified the parts of Sydney that are now gentrified, was a much more culturally diverse place. It had many different layers of class, and uh, it was in some ways a more dangerous place. These days, the inner cities uh, of most modern um, industrialised economies have become gentrified and have become much more monocultural. And I think that's true in Sydney uh, particularly, where, you know, houses that were <laughs> you know, slums are now going for, you know, one and a half, two million dollars. Not very many people can afford to live there anymore, except a certain class of people. So I think that has changed the nature of our inner cities in particular. They're just very different. But... The rest of Sydney, like the suburban areas of Sydney, uh, Parramatta and beyond, uh, around those sorts of ethnic uh, areas, has become much more multicultural and much more diverse as a result, as these people have been pushed out to those areas. So I really wanted to try and reflect the diversity of Sydney, but also, um, you know, the things we've lost through that. Is Dead Letters some kind of lament for a lost Sydney? I don't know if you know the, the, the singer-songwriter Perry Keys, but... Um, his songs are mentioned in this book and he lived in the, uh, the tower blocks, the working class housing commission tower blocks in Waterloo. That was the sort of flavour I was trying to get, you know, this, the fact that, that there's not much of that left anymore in, in Sydney, you know. So, so, yes, it is a bit of a, a lament for the diversity and the, the class differences and all those sorts of colourful things that we've lost about, about that part of Sydney in particular over the years. There's actually a sentence in there that prompted this question. The curse of gentrification was seeping into the industrial zones and long neglected corners of the city like a spilt Negroni. And I'm assuming that Negroni is a derogatory reference rather than the simple loss of a cocktail. Is that <laughs> you speaking, Michael, or is that Sid Allen? Well, I think it's probably both, really, but it's certainly my reflection of, um, of what's happening. And I think that that uh, point in the book in particular is they're going to this um, this area sort of south of Newtown in St Peter's, which, you know, to be honest, years ago in the 80s and the 90s was an incredibly gritty working class industrial suburb. And, I mean, it's amazing the transformation that's happening in that part of Sydney and how, uh, how the culture there is changing. That place is right underneath the flight path. It's, um, you know, it's not, it's a long way from the harbour. Uh, there's not a lot that's sort of traditionally sort of uh, Sydney about it in, that, in the sense that we think of as Sydney as that sort of tourist city and the, and, and the affluent parts of Sydney. But that is becoming a very, very sort of, you know, affluent corner of Sydney, remarkably. By going back to the Sydney of the 80s and 90s that you knew, are you cultivating some kind of Sydney noir? Uh, look, I hope so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think um, Australian crime is going through a bit of a sort of uh, moment, right, and a lot of it's focused on what we'd call bush noir or, you know, dingo noir or whatever it's called, you know, the the um, the Jane Harpers and Chris Hammers and uh, all of that stuff that's come out in the last few years, which is fantastic and, and it's really great that that is having a moment. And I think we owe a lot to Scandi noir because of that. You know, it's sort of the... Uh, complete opposite of Scandi noir in a way. It's, you know, it's not cold and snow, snow driven. It's dry and dusty and hot and, and place is a really important element in these books. But, you know, 
there's no reason why we can't reflect a real Australia, a cultural significance of Australia through writing about our cities. And we happily read American noir set in cities or British noir set in cities or even Scandi noir, which is set in Scandinavian cities. You know, I think of Joe Nesbo and stuff. A lot of his books are written, you know, in, in the cities. And I think it's just as relevant to tell Australian stories from Australian cities. I mean, the weather in our cities, the, the atmosphere in our cities, the, the sort of environment of our cities is unique, is something that we have that is not shared by uh, other cities in the world. And so um, I think we can place our crime. I, I'd like to think we can, and that's what I have, I'm hoping to do, sort of place the crime uh, in our cities, in Australian cities. Turning to politics for a moment, which is something you've been involved in for quite a long time or reporting on politics, but uh, this is a major part of what happens in, in your book, Dead Letters. Neither politicians or politics emerged from your book as having much credibility. Is that the impression of a seasoned journo or just a very colourful narrative seeping through the pages of your book? Clearly, uh, I wanted to connect these crimes politically. Um, and, you know, I mean, look, uh, I think politics probably emerges in this book. Um, what's the right word? <laughs> it's not as bleak as it, as it seems in the book, uh, to be honest. But, look, I do bring some personal experience to this, clearly. Um, I have been a political reporter for quite a long time. Uh, I've known a lot of politicians and I've known a lot of the motivations behind what happens in politics and why people get into politics. And what I was interested in in this was what happens when people start out in their political careers and they make big decisions, big mistakes, which is what these characters have done when they're young politicians and they end up progressing through their careers and end up in the highest office in the land as political operatives or politicians themselves. And those decisions that they made at the start of their careers come back and haunt them when they get to the, the top of their game. I just found that an interesting thing to explore. So uh, that, that's sort of why I did it. And, you know, to do that, you've got to make those crimes pretty serious and pretty significant. So that's what I did. Um, but, of course, it's all fiction. <laughs> do politicians read crime fiction? And if not, should they? Yeah, I reckon they probably should. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they do or not. None of them, none of them write to me and tell me they've read my books. So, um, look, I, you know, I think the great thing about crime fiction as well is that it does reflect the sort of cultural and social and political issues that are running through our society quite eloquently a lot of the time. There was a really interesting uh, piece written in the New York Times which basically said um, it's actually crime writers who are stepping up to the sort of social responsibility of commenting on politics much more effectively than, than other writers at the moment. And I think there's some truth to that, you know, because I think there's a bit of licence in writing crime uh, and genre fiction in particular that allows you to sort of reflect on the current issues and cultural influences that are coursing through our world in a way that uh, is engaging and um, without being didactic really reflects what's sort of going on in, in, in our contemporary society. And some of the best writers do that really well. I'm thinking here of, you know, probably... Uh, Don Winslow in particular uh, just comes to mind. He's someone who's written this trilogy about um, the drug wars and, and immigration in the United States. And you learn an awful lot about this incredible moment in our history through reading those, those three books written over a period of about 10 years or more. So politicians should read uh, more crime novels because it might give them a better uh, idea of what's actually really happening out there. It sounds a bit like... Um... What is it, uh, art imitating life or is it life imitating art? 
yeah, quite possibly, yes. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be too, uh, you know, too prescriptive about this, but I do think that the entertaining narrative of a good genre book, of a good crime book, just through the dialogue, through the place, through the characters, you inevitably have to reflect the sort of current condition. Dead Letters is also a commentary on the state of journalism and its relationship with politics. If it's not too direct a question and not too tired a question, what's the state of journalism today and where is it headed? And has its relationship with politics changed in your time as a journalist? Let me take the last bit first. Yes, it has. I think it's become much more ideological. This relationship between journalism and politics is always a difficult one. You know, you rely on your sources. You uh, you don't want to burn them too much, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I do think that, that we have become, that the media has become much more segmented and much more ideological, and that's not a good thing at all. And I think the emergence, for instance, of the, the sort of dramatically sort of right shift of, uh, of some of our media um, is polarising our our media and is polarising our society, and I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. Where is it going? You know, that's a really difficult question and one that we've been asking as journalists uh, for some time since the internet disrupted everything. And I think you're going to see increasing polarisation. I don't think we can ever bring that back now. And the big mastheads are going to work, like, as we've seen, the New York Times, the ones that are global mastheads, who have the depth and the heft to be able to to compete on the internet and to, and to do everything that's required to be a big modern media organisation, those things are going to work, work really well. Local small media is probably going to work quite well too because people want their local news particularly and they want to go to local sources. It's all of that stuff in the middle that I think is really endangered and that's we've seen a lot of those newspapers fold over the time. The financial model's just not there to make it work anymore and nobody's really found the answer to that. So that is going to be something that's going to play out considerably in the future. You know, I don't really know where it's going to go, but we're going to see a lot, a lot more change over the next few years for sure. As a final question yeah. to you, back to Sid Allen, what does the future hold for Sid Allen? Look, I'd like to think there is a future for Sid Allen. Um, I haven't actually started writing another book yet because, um, you know, my day job's pretty um, intense at the moment. But I will, and um, I'd like to take him a bit further. But I'd also like to do, uh, you know, a couple of other things as well. So I don't know whether the next book will be a Sid Allen book, but he'll definitely be back. Michael Brissenden, thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Great. Thanks for having me. I've been talking to Michael Brissenden about his new book, Dead Letters. It's published by Hachette and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. You've been listening to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for joining me.